listening to Anatomy 103, Unity of Purpose, part of our sermon series entitled Divine Physiology, preached in the spring of 2009 at Hocassa Baptist Church. And now, Pastor John Boulay. There is one body. And one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. And one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Please pray with me. Lord, I pray for each person here that at the hearing of the word, even at the preaching of it, Lord, that we might be changed, be renewed. Father, that we might be confined more and more to the sole the soul image of Christ. Father, I pray for unity in this body. I pray for unity one to another, Lord, unity with our, from our lives to, to your mission, and unity with the Spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you're joining us this morning as we continue in our sermon series called Divine Physiology. And it's a series devoted to looking at the church. And I said last week that as, we, as we're preaching through divine physiology, uh, I was going to do my best to, uh, I'm following, roughly following the book of Ephesians, kind of rooting the, the thoughts and approaches to the book of Ephesians. And I will say, it, it can be frustrating when you do that, because the Bible tends to change what you want to say. Uh, when I have my thoughts and I'm just taking, I was going to just come here with some topical study on the church. Uh, when, I, when I anchored myself in Ephesians, it seemed that Paul had something to say to me about, uh, well, actually, this is a different way that you need to talk about the church. And so I'm trying to confine myself uh, as, as much as, as practical to the, the teachings of Ephesians, because I think it has a word for us in our church. And this word that is uh, that, that, that Paul has been working on in the book of Ephesians has been centered around this idea of unity. Unity in the church. Paul started it in the, two weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. That's when he said that the Lord made Christ the head of the body and that the body was the church. That's the first time it started to come out in the letter to the Ephesians, was that Christ is the head of the body, that the Lord had put everything beneath the feet of, the, of Christ and that Christ was the head of the body, and that the body was the church. That was two weeks ago. Last week, Paul takes a new angle on it. He continues to talk about the body, but he talks about it with this reflection of the fact that you and I need to remember what we once were, that we were not originally in the body of Christ. Do you remember he said that, remember you were once without hope, you were without God, you were outside the promises of the Lord, you were outside the grace of Jesus Christ, and it was by faith which was a gift the grace of Christ which came to us as a gift that he took us out of that body of sin and he put us in the body of Christ and now we, the two have become one and we are one with the body. And in that teaching is this teaching that the church is part of our salvation. It's something we don't, we don't, we don't talk about very much but I find it impossible to separate the church. I don't mean this church. I mean God's church, God's invisible church, the community of believers the, the fellowship of the saints, I find it impossible to separate that kind of fellowship from, from healthy, a healthy Christian life. 
They're the two, if we are in the body, if salvation of Jesus and our life lived out is lived out in the body of Christ, and if the body of Christ is the church, then the teaching is that we're to live our lives within the church. That was last week. This week, Paul does something new. He's still building on unity, but he begins this kind of use of this idea of oneness. One body, he says, one church, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is Father in all and through all. That's what he says. And in a way, what Paul's saying is, is there are not two Gospels. There are not two religions. There aren't two ways of approaching the Christian faith. There's one Gospel. There's one truth, which is certainly relevant today. Churches, uh, many communities of faith, they won't claim they're preaching a different Gospel, but, but there are different Gospels that are available to you if you want to market yourself around. You can hear a different Gospel at many different churches. And Paul's here saying there is one Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he says there's one body and one hope and one grace, you know, he's saying things like there's equality of salvation in everyone here. That salvation is not on a caste system. I'm not going to a different heaven than you. You're not going to a different level than me. You're not privy to some kind of limited grace that I have unlocked some kind of mysterious greater grace. There's no caste system in the Christian faith, which is which is so unique. I, I wish that you could just spend a week in the Middle East to see how suffocating the caste system can be on a culture. To say that to some people, no matter what you'll do, you will never have access to this kind of grace from God. We have equal access because the, grace of, the gift of grace is to all mankind. And there's one God. There aren't many gods. We're not simply worshiping Yahweh as our chosen God in a pantheon. He's not our kind of a local God or our mascot. This letter in Ephesus, Ephesus was the seat, if you might think of it, of the god Artemis. One of the wonders of the ancient world was in Ephesus, the temple of Artemis. And the people in the book of Acts, you can see at one point that they rallied to the cause of Artemis. The silversmiths say that the worship of Artemis is in crisis and there's a city riot against the Christians because there's many gods in that pantheon. And Paul's here to say there's one God, one faith, one hope, one Lord, and one body in which that's practiced, and that is the church. There's one mission statement, if you might want to think of it that way. I think the Lord here is calling us to a singular vision, a commitment and a loyalty and an identity to the oneness of the Lord. And it makes me think, by the way, uh, by the way, you, right now we're in a, in a time where the church is innovating. We're innovating. I don't know if you knew that, but I can go to, uh, I didn't go to an innovating conference this time. But in any given week, I could find some church innovating conference across the country. And I want to be innovative, so I may go one day. But we're in this place where we're trying to, to make the church innovative and relevant and, and to speak the language of the people listening. And that's all good, but I will say this. Nothing new will come from that. We may find better ways to speak to us, but we will not find new things to say. We may find better ways to kind of, better methodology, a better language to speak, a better way to, 
to package something, a better way to, to, to be authentic in our context, but it is still one Lord, one Christ, one hope, one faith, and one body. That has not changed because it's one. It's like this. And this is where I think, I kind of think Paul is building a picture like this. If you've ever been in the, in the military or if you know someone who has, if you're close, there's this thing called basic training we all go to. And in basic training, now I went to a kind of a unique basic training. I went to like a prima donna basic training. Because the academy, uh, at the Air Force Academy, it's, it's a group of people who have all through high school been uh, overachievers and award winners. So in my basic training class of like 30, there were six valedictorians. It's the kind of group I was with. And in basic training, the goal is, well, there's a lot of goals. Part of them is to dehumanize you. But if I could phrase that, I'm, but I should say I'm all for it. I'm all for it. The goal is to make you a zero, is to take you down to absolutely nothing. They shave your head. They, you're, you're embarrassed. You're, 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 you're forced to do things that are way outside of your comfort zone that you're not good at. And the whole goal is to minimize you so that you might learn to connect in a real and authentic way with the group. The core unit, the squadron in my, in my world, but the company or, or the fire team or whatever it happens to be. The goal is to, is to take you and to, and to whittle you down to a place where your association and your value is not in yourself, but in the team. And so when I was in basic training, I, what I found was the cadre that were over me were better at me in every possible facet of life. They just, they completely tore me down. They were better looking than me. They were fit, more physically fit than me. They were smarter than me. They were more athletic than me. They were funnier than me. They always knew all the answers to all the questions. I was struggling to try to learn the knowledge just to make it through the day, and they had it all in their memory bank because they had been there before, and they had grown up, and they had been part of this. And I know that's true because when I was a cadre, guess what? I, too, was better than all of my basics in every possible way. <laughs> I was. It's just a fact of life. A basic is not, not good at anything. You take anybody and you stick them a mile high in the mountains and they're not going to feel very athletically fit. You, know, you take anybody and you do this. And so there's this way that they dumbed us down and then we became a unit. And, and then you feel like somebody, but you feel like somebody in relationship to the larger body. And I think that's what Paul is doing here this morning in the fourth chapter. He's about to start an argument, but he says, before I do, I want to remind you, you're part of one body, which is part of one faith, which is subject to one hope that we have in one Lord, which is Jesus. And that comes through one faith in God the Father, who is over all and through all and in all. And so this is what Paul's doing. And this is what we're going to study. If, if you haven't opened your Bibles already, if you would open to the fourth chapter of Ephesians. I want to say something special this morning. I'm going to preach for about 20 or 25 minutes. Then we're going to talk about this afternoon. I'm going to save about 10 minutes to talk about this afternoon. I hope you can be equally engaged at both. So save a little for me. All right? Uh, because this afternoon we, we, we've gone through a lot of effort to make this innovative and relevant. I hope. Ephesians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, I hope you read along with me. 
I'm going to read the first 16 verses. Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. and Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But... To each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in this train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended was the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave to some to be apostles and some to be prophets, some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. What a great passage in Scripture. Well, we're going to kind of work through this this morning and try to unpackage or... or to code why he has this focus on this oneness. But the first thing I want to call your attention to is in verse 1. This, this first kind of way he builds his argument, he says this, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That's what he says. Worthy of the calling you have received. You, if you're in Christ, you have received a calling from the Lord. Now, as a pastor, I'm, I'm down with the idea of calling. You know, that's what pastors do. We meet each other, you know, we have our secret handshake. And then we say stuff like, so tell me about when you were called. That's how you, if you want to act like a pastor, that's how you say, you know, so tell me about your calling. Because pastors and missionaries, we kind of throw that word willy-nilly around because because I was called. I was called to be here. I have a faith story that I know I'm supposed to be here. So I'm comfortable with it. But are you comfortable with the idea that you were called? You need to live a life worthy of the calling you received, is what Paul says. Paul's not writing to pastors. This is not a letter to the pastor's conference in Ephesus. You need to live a life. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you received. We are all vocational ministers in Christ. There is no one here who who was saved by Jesus who was called from a life of death to a life of new life in Christ, who was not also charged with living a life worthy of that calling. In a sense, sometimes we get this idea that Christ saves down pat, but we don't get this idea that Christ uses down pat. If Christ saved you, Christ will use you. You've been called to a life. Live a life worthy of his calling. That's his first step here. And then verses 2 and 3, he, he, he uses these, these one-anothering phrases. 
Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. It's, it's, it's an it's a instruction that he's, gonna, he's getting ready to spend a lot of time on. And in fact, we're gonna, that's the subject of next week, is the unity among one another. But he, he says this briefly, and then he, he turns... So we're going to wait. We'll wait till next week to talk about that. But then he heads into this conversation about one. One body, one church, one spirit, one hope, one Christ, one Lord, one God, the Father of all. What is he saying there? Why is he saying that? Well, here's why. I think verses 7 and 8 kind of have this answer. He encourages them, live in a unified faith, if I can say it that way. Live in a single-minded, devoted sense, as though you are just graduating basic training. Be single-minded, have your full identity, not in yourself, but in the body of Christ. Because each one of us, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train, and he gave gifts to men. Do you see what just happened? You're one, you're one, you're one, you're one, you're one, you're one, you're one. But Christ has given you gifts according to his grace, special gifts that are unique. So you're one, you're one, you're one, but you're unique. You are unique. And this is the beauty of, of the Christian faith. This is the beauty of, of, of the gift of Christ to us. That in one sense, we're called to be a unified body in, in a way that is, is above and beyond what you see in daily life. We don't simply kind of salute a, a business mission statement. We, we are supposed to be one in spirit. That whole song we just sang, do that. Do the whole song. That's the kind of oneness that we're exhorted to do. But there's also this, this, this teaching that comes from Scripture which says, but you are Unique. Christ thought about you. In your mother's womb, Christ was apportioning grace to you in a unique way. In a way that fingerprints you for the Father. And in that, he says, but you've been given this gift. And this gift has to in some way incorporate itself into the unity of the body. And this is where churches, this is where communities get it wrong so many times. Either we destroy ourselves, we, you know, we want to be all the same. And you go to churches where it's just the same thing. It's this, it's, they're just cookie cutters of the same person or communities. Why? Because they don't understand that Christ wants us to be unique. Because they're focused on we need to be one. We need to be in unity with each other. Which is with each other. And then there are communities where they, they, they kind of forfeit the unity of the church in order to celebrate the individual uniqueness. And Paul is saying, you need to be one. That, is, that has to be first in your mind. How can Christ's body, which is undivided in its nature, how can the gospel of Christ, which is undivided in its nature, how can the lordship and the triune fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit which have no dissenting members in it at all, which have always since before time been one, how can it coexist and celebrate a body which is full of members who want to be individuals? That's what Paul's saying. And this is where the church is constantly struggling. We don't think of it this way, but this is where it happens. This, it happens with coming into the church and going, do I need to be like them to be with Christ? Or do I need to be like Christ 
We ask that. We ask that. We walk around. You know, people will say, I'm in the church. I just don't feel like I'm, everybody, like I'm everybody else. You're not like everybody else. You're like no one else. Nobody else. Seek to be like Christ and celebrate the fact that he has given you a special grace. There's a portion for you for the sake of the body. That may mean that you say to me, I think there needs to be a basket weaving ministry here because you have a heart for basket weaving. To which I will likely say, great, go do it. I will not basket weave for you. That's not my basket of tricks, <laughs> right? But, but, but if, you, if God has made you with a heart and a gift and a desire to do something, bring it here and make us more one. This is how it's written in the book of Romans. This is Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Listen to how similar. Another church on the uh, time zone away. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Right there he's saying, be careful how much you see yourself. Then he says this, Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's in serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's just contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. This is what he says to the church in Corinth, across the ocean from Ephesus. The body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all the parts are many and they form one body, so it is with Christ. For, now listen to this. It sounds just as creedal as, as, as his words in Ephesus. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if an ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged all the parts in the body, every one of them just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Those are so good. They just minister in the hearing of them. But there's this idea that you are unique, but you are valued only to the degree that you, you confine yourself to the unity of Christ and his body. If you're an I, you are useless if you are not in the body. And you're not very useful if you're in the body, but you're raging against the body because you want to be more of an I, or because you wish you had been an ear, or because you wish something. You need to celebrate what God has made you to do and celebrate the fact that his gift of grace allows you to work it out towards his purpose. That's such a gift. 
It's such a gift to be human and to feel this way and be allowed to use it for the kingdom. What if we had to give that up? But some of you, I think, do wrestle with that. I've, been, uh, I've had the opportunity to uh, serve on a few uh, with, with marine units from time to time. And there's an interesting thing, by the way, I, this is about the, one of the few times I say good stuff about Marines. So, uh, <laughs> but this is, a, this is a unique, this is something I found to be unique, particularly among the Marines. If you take a one, and there are certainly exceptions to this, if you take a one-each Marine with his M16 rifle who's sitting guard, right? When I was in Africa, they were, they were in charge of our security. If you're sitting guard, and if you interview them, tell Tell me about your job. How much time do you have? No matter how simple the job is, if you give him a chance to talk, he will turn the hook, and he'll break his weapon down, you know, put it on the table. He'll throw it in the air. It will land intact. He'll spin it, and while he's spinning it, he'll, he'll give you some creed about his weapon. This is my rifle. It is not mine. You know, he'll do this whole thing because he's so involved, and he's so proud of what he does, and there's so much pride and in my heart, I'm like, he stands on a wall. And I think, thank God he cares about that. I would, I would use that rifle against myself if I had to do that. But he takes so much pride in what he's doing. But if you say something like, like well, what happens if you, get, if you go down? What happens if you get taken out? This is the interesting thing. You'd think that somebody who thought he was so integral would say, Whew, the base falls. No. A good Marine says, well, if I fall down, my, my buddy has my back, or Fireteam 3 has got me in their triangular side. He knows the depth. Oh, Jack, I'm sorry. Oh, man. I thought, I thought all our Marines were in the first service. Uh, but, you know, he'll know. He knows how he relates to the rest of the body, the rest of the unit, and to that he is significant. He's as significant as the whole unit. And so as much pride as he has in his giftedness, it doesn't matter to him if he's not essential to the operating of the body. And I have always found that to be singular among my experiences with with the Marines. I mean, I live in a world of prima donnas where we all think the world, you know, fighter pilots are absolute zeros in that regard. But but the the Marines, they have such, such a cohesive loyalty to the units. And I think that's what God is calling us to. God is calling us to this, this celebration of what he's made for us and this dedication to make it part of the body so that the body is built up. I want to give you one example from Scripture of, of who I think lives this out well, a, a person you should meditate on when you're thinking of this. And I think that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist was called by the Lord at a young age. In his womb, he was called by the Lord. And he spent his life living a life worthy of the calling he had received. And the amazing thing about John the Baptist was he was so gifted. You just know he was gifted. And yet he was so humble. The rabbis and the teachers would come to him saying, Are you the Messiah? They said that to him. Imagine being that gifted. Imagine being so gifted that the people who knew the Hebrew law were actually considering you for the position of Messiah. No, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not a prophet. 
I'm not Elijah, he said. He said, I am a voice. Somebody that gifted who would turn right around and say, I'm nothing but a voice. I do nothing but make the path straight for Christ. I'm nothing but a herald of the Almighty. That was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was revered, but he was revered, and yet he was revering. He was revered, but it didn't go to his head. He didn't gather some kind of identity about it. He was revered because he was so otherworldly. He had given up his wealth and his, and his clothing, and he lived in the desert, and the people noticed that. John the Baptist was given authority, and yet he, he himself subjected himself to authority. He was willing to become less so that Christ might become more. This is what it says in, in the third chapter of John. There's this, uh, this is scenario. John, Jesus has just been baptized. And after Jesus is baptized, there's John the Baptist who's baptizing. Okay, this is kind of weird. John the Baptist is baptizing with his disciples. And downriver, Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. And you can imagine if you were one of like John's boys, now there's two baptizers on the block is what's going on here. This is what it says in the 22nd verse of John 3. After this, speaking after the baptism, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Ainon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between the sons of John's, some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one who test, you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everybody's going to him. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The joy is mine, and it's now complete. Now imagine that. First of all, this is pre-church. So last Sunday when I said that when Paul writes... Husbands, submit to your wives as the church submitted to Christ. And when he says, uh, or wives, submit to your husbands as the church submitted to Christ. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's post-church. But did you just see what John the Baptist did? He uses the exact same imagery to talk about Christ before the church. When I read that, I I jumped up and down inside to see the, the oneness of God's theology. That John the Baptist would say, look, I'm not the bride. I'm not the bridegroom. I am attending the bridegroom. And now he's here. It's his church. And I celebrate that. And he ends this way. He ends with this. He must become greater. I must become less. I think we, even we as a church need to do that. I think we as a church need to celebrate Jesus in such a profound way that we go unnoticed. Too often we go unnoticed because we do nothing. I want to go unnoticed because Jesus is getting all the attention. That's what we're supposed to do. Here's kind of not what we do, but some ways we can mess this up. So that's the picture. If you're good, you're, you're John the Baptist good. All right? If, if you, you're out of balance a little ways, what I want to do now is share with you just two ways that we're kind of, we can be out of balance. And, and certainly, you're, you're probably not all of these, but probably you're a little bit of some of these. And there's more ways, but here's two. 
The first is, and both of them stem from pride, by the way, personal pride. We want to be an individual, which is why Paul says there's one body and one faith, one Lord, one Jesus, one hope, one God. Got it? That's how he starts the argument. Why? Because you and I both know we want to be, we want to celebrate ourselves. Even when we do good, we mess it up, don't we? We have to make sure somebody knows what we did. So here's one of the first ways that our pride gets in the way, is is our sinful condition keeps us from service to the church. It keeps us from service. And here's a few ways that this happens. Statement number one, I won't serve because I don't particularly like so-and-so. I won't serve because I don't like so-and-so. I know that's the case, because Paul spends so much of his time dealing with one another. We are the problem. How often we kind of, oh, I don't want to work with that person. And then we avoid what God has called us to. We avoid the needs of the body. How is that person going to be loved? How is, will that person be one another? That's next week. Next week. But it's next week. Here's another reason. I don't know my gift. I can't serve because I don't know my gift. Here's a few short answers to that, and I want to be sensitive, so code it with sensitivity. But first of all, gifts are discovered typically in service. So you will not know your gift by and large until you do something. I once preached, my first sermon I ever preached, I don't have time for this, but it's good. My first sermon I ever preached was to this, uh, I, had a, I was in seminary, I, 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 like, I make good friends with Koreans. And I don't, that's my gift. And so there's a lot of Korean students in the seminary, and I was friends with one of them, and he invited me to preach. This was years ago. Preach to his Korean congregation, which was kind of half Korean, half American. My first time ever preaching. And I wrote this big, like, Charles Spurgeon sermon. I mean, I think I even had the word low, like low from the mountaintop in it. And, uh, I mean, it was, a, it was a sermon that was meant for a cathedral with, like, a million people on Easter. And I got there, and there were 12 people, six New English. <laughs> and I just, you can just imagine my, it was the worst experience of my life. It was terrible. Why I kept deciding to be a preacher, I don't know. But, but what I'm saying is, is, I thought, I said, I think I'm called to preach. Maybe I should go try it. It's in, it's in serving that we discover our gifts. That's the first thing. The second thing is, gifts do not necessarily correlate to where you're supposed to serve. They're different. What you're good at and, what, and where you serve do not always correlate. That's where our heart for ministry can be different than our giftedness for ministry. Let me give you an example. My sister has a heart for like nonprofit ministries, urban ministries, that kind of thing. But her giftedness is administrative. She's a CPA, she's a number person. I tease her because she used to work for Arthur Anderson and, uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, but she, so that's what she does. Do you realize, by the way, that the, the thorn in the side of almost every nonprofit organization is that they have nobody there who has administrative skill? Because they're full of people whose gifts are serving the poor. They're full of people who are compassionate. And so they have all of this love, but they can't pay the bills. They have all of this compassion, but they can't organize. My sister is called to organize nonprofits. Her heart is for nonprofits, but her gift set, you never would intuitively say, 
That's supposed to be in a nonprofit organization. Your giftedness and your where you should serve do not necessarily correlate. We need people who can teach in the kitchen. We need people who can counsel on the missions team. Right? As long as there's people, there's needs. I'll say it this way also. In this body, there are some of you who know what you're supposed to do. You know you're a singer, you know you're a drummer, you know you're a teacher, you know you're whatever. And I would call you like, you know you're a skin cell or you're like an elbow cell or a nose cell. Well, you know. Some of you don't know, and for that reason, you're not serving. And I would say maybe you're not a skin cell, maybe you're a stem cell. You like that? You're a stem cell. Right? The church needs people who go, I don't know what I'm good at, but whatever you need me to do, I'll do. I pray for those people. I pray that God would bring us people who are just willing to do. We need those people. We need you. That's your gift. If you need to know what your gift is, your gift is that you're a stem, a stem cell. Now go and stem. Okay. We're running behind, so I've got to keep going here. Here's another reason people don't serve. I'm too good for that. I'm too good for that ministry. If that's what you think, I would, I would remind you of last week and say, remember what you once were. Remember that. You were without hope. You're without God. You're not too good for that. Here's another one. My life is too busy. And this last one, I'm just not good enough. All of these, even the self-deprecating ones, stem from pride. Stem from the fact that we don't have faith that God's grace would empower us. Stem from the fact that we think too much of ourselves. Even when we think deprecatingly too little of ourselves, we're placing ourselves above Christ. That's the first That's the first kind of imbalance that we suffer. And we all probably deal with that in some ways. Here's the second kind of imbalance. It's not your refusal to involve yourself in ministry, but when you get involved in ministry, you sow dissension and you disrupt the body within ministry. So I don't have any trouble getting you to sign up for something, but when you get into ministry, you become a source of a headache for the body of Christ. A stomachache. And this is oftentimes how it happens. Probably, to me, the biggest bait where this happens is when you decide that you love your ministry more than you love Jesus. Some of you know what you're supposed to do. You know you're right where you're supposed to be. But you've begun to love a secondary ministry over the oneness of the church. It's all out of proportion. The body's out of balance. That you've, you've taken your ministry and you've put it up and above the goal of the church. It's like that cartoon. Remember the old Warner Brothers cartoons? There was, it was like a big red Yeti. And he would grab, I, I forget, it might have been Tweety Bird, but he'd grab him and he'd go, I love him and I'm going to squeeze him and I'm going to call him George. Do you remember that? Yeah. I hope you do, because I'm not doing that again. But, you know, the, the, he kind of petted him. But what he did, what, what did he do? He squeezed, I don't know if it was Tweety, but whatever it was, he squeezed it to death. The object of his love was what he strangled. And some of us do that with ministry. We love it so much that we strangle the life out of it. And the church suffers. Is Christ in his kingdom first? Or is your feeling for self-involvement and self-worth first? I think it's a question we have to ask ourselves. Well, we're running out of time. So uh, those are two ways that we're imbalanced. I pray that... As you think about this week, as you stay this afternoon, hopefully these will be in your minds, these questions about how you ought to be involved. Are you living a life worthy of the calling you have received? That's the question. And if, if not, 
this is the place to do it. Maybe not this community, but the community of Christ. If you, if you feel like you're not living the life that you've been called, you, you're not living a life worthy of the call you received, but there's no place here, I would say pray about maybe the Lord needs to take you to another body that desperately needs you. Go. Go in God's peace. As long as you're going with God's peace. Let me close with, with these last verses, which are so good. Then you will be no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth and love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. That's so good. 